Thank you so much for listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I just want to start off by letting you know that we did finish recording these podcasts in February. So as you'll know, that's before we faced all the changes and adjustments that we're now making during the COVID-19 pandemic. So you'll notice we don't talk about it at all, and that's why. But if you're interested in hearing stories and conversations about life during the pandemic, Cole Primo and I are talking to folks in a spinoff podcast called Native Lights Bidapi. So check that out as well. With that said, please enjoy these awesome Native stories on Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Hello, welcome to Native Lights, the podcast where indigenous indigenous voices voices shine. shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. All right, Cole Primo, what's new? How's the music going? Uh, You know, it's going well. It's going well. I'm just working on a new song, collaborating with uh, artists here and there. But yeah, just really in the final stages of mixing a single, and hopefully that leads to an album down the road. So, How long does it take for you to start a, a song and then finish the single? Years. As a hobby musician, it takes, it takes a while. <laughs> well, how many hours do you put into that? It takes a long time, you know, with the writing of the song or, you know, the mixing and then just getting everybody together to get in the recording studio. It's, it can be challenging to get people's schedules all lined up and stuff like that. You don't want to have people play for free. So, but I figured that out and we're, we're working on it. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, fun. how about you? What's uh, what's going on in the, the art world? Of, you know, of I, I wrote this new song and people actually like it and they're like, you should record that. I'm like, okay. Great. <laughs> Another thing to put on the list. No, but it's really nice when people are like, oh, yeah, you should record that. It huh. like, doesn't have to be you know, perfectly done. You can just do a live performance. You're telling that to me, Cole. <laughs> and I will say that back to you. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> but as an artist, is your work ever done? Not really, no. And then when you're done, it's like you listen back and you're like, oh, I should have done that differently you should have done that differently there's definitely albums that i've had like a couple years ago that i still wish like let's go back and kind of redo the vocals just a little bit (laughs) i've seen poets like go up to the stage before reading their poetry and like still make changes to their books (laughs) and poems in their books (laughs) it's like it's the curse (laughs) Yeah, it's really fun to talk about music, you know, especially as a musician. And awesomely enough, today we have a musician and an artist on the show today. So yeah, we're talking about their work and their path from beginning to now, where they're being recognized and celebrated. Yep, and our first guest sings, plays guitar, and the drums. (laughs) Children of Mother Earth. Bonjour, hello, my name is Chaz Wagner, Ginugijik, Indigenikaz. Um, I'm from Net Lake, I'm a Boys Fort band member, and I'm band member of Warbonnet. So Chaz started the band Warbonnet with his friend Tony Parson. And it's a pretty new band, but they're definitely not new musicians. 
Let's take a look at the nominees for Best Rock Recording. In 2019, Warbonnet was nominated for two Native American Music Awards, Best Rock Recording and Group of the Year. Ghost Dance, Warbonnet. I don't like putting titles to anything, but in this day and age, you kind of need a title to, you know, and the only thing I can really describe it generically would be rock music. However, our music is so complex that you can't put a title to it. And the winner is... Spoiler alert. They didn't win either one of those awards, but they are only just ramping up. And Chaz says he had an amazing experience at the awards show. I got to play on stage with Keith Cola and Wes Studi and Mickey James. Man, it was just a night of a lifetime. It was like I couldn't, I was looking down there and I was playing the bongos and I was looking down and there's West Studi who's jamming out. I was like, wow, man, I'm just up here living a dream. Who's West Studi playing? He was playing guitar. He played, yeah, he, he's such a talented, talented man. Mm -hmm. Very nice man too. I got to meet him and hang out with him and, and it was unbelievable. Just like you in the interview, like I didn't know Wes Studi played the guitar. That is so cool. And if listeners don't know, he's like a very well-known actor. Uh, he's last of the Mohicans. He always plays a bad guy. <laughs> a bad guy Indian, <laughs> apparently. He's played some good characters, but yeah, he's well. He dances with wolves. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't know that he played guitar. That's amazing. I would love to jam with him sometime. <laughs> So anyway, I went to a Warbonnet rehearsal to talk to Chaz and to meet the band. And it was just, it was this big garage, very live garage. Like the sounds were bouncing around everywhere. There was like no carpet or anything. And it was super loud and just like this wall of sound coming through. There was your bass, you got a couple guitars, there were keys, a singer, and even a euphonium, right? So like one of those little tubas playing. And I was like, this is awesome <laughs> <laughs> a lot of sound yeah it was it was a big sound and so you know they rehearsed and then afterwards i got to talk to Chaz, and it's pretty incredible all the ways he works with music it's not just war bonnet he's also committed to traditional ojibwe music i sing for on the boys fort drum i'm one of the lead singers i, I do a lot of our old traditional singing for our community. I help a lot of people who are need for healing, you know, sing songs to them or for their families. I, I also help with funerals up there. I help out with our veteran ceremonies. I get a lot of calls from the school who ask me to sing for, we have many powwows up there for the, the youth students. So Chaz says he comes from a family of dancers. Like my mom was a jingle dress dancer. My sisters are jingle dress dancers. My grandma. So I just wanted to follow suit. So I, I started dancing traditional, men's traditional at powwows. You know, I, I was around the music. You know, I, I was dancing for years. And a drum keeper one day just said, hey, come sit down. So, of course, I'm not going to say no, because in our culture, you really don't say no. 
yeah, I, I sat down at the drum and sat down with those elders and we we're just singing songs. And Chaz says it took him years to learn what he calls the necessary songs. You know, like the tobacco song and or the pipe song, veteran song. Flag song, healing song, you know, those are like the necessary songs that you should know if you're starting out. He says he had to learn these songs, but at the same time, they came totally naturally to him. You know, all that passed on in my it's in my DNA and you know, because I I can remember a tune and just like that, you know, like I can hear one of them old traditional songs and I can remember it just like that. Not only is he like getting this culture from his participation, but there's this like DNA um, recognition of music. Yeah, for sure. And Chaz told me that these songs are the inspiration for War Bonnet songs. I'll start off with the ghost dance. The inspiration was that whole ghost dance movement back in the 1800s when we do these dances you know, to kind of rise up and have the ghosts of our past ancestors to come back and fight along with us. And that's where the inspiration of our first album came from, the ghost dance. And it starts off with this this pipe, as we call it the sacred pipe song. And it's like smoke swirling around and that's what it kind of sounds like. You know, like the smoke... starts off like a ceremony like that, you know, because that's what our ceremonies start off with, with the pipe. So I wanted to incorporate that into the album, you know, because it's the album itself is like a ceremony starting up and this band and this group is like a ceremony starting up. And Chaz reminded me that up until the 70s, it wasn't actually legal to practice our cultural songs. Mm-hmm which just always blows my mind because that's, like, not that long ago. (laughs) So it feels like a lot of his artistry is a celebration of being able to do that now. Yeah. From what I'm hearing, it also seems like there's, you know, other influences involved. Yeah, and he was definitely introduced to a lot of Western influences as a kid. My dad, my mother, they're both musicians, and they both played in the cities. Uh, that's where they met, and that's where I was born. It was in St. Paul, and I, my mom would go on stage when she was pregnant with me. Maybe I heard that, and maybe that's why I'm so musical now. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? There was this huge record collection, and it had Queen in there. It had the Beatles. The Who, just any cool old school band. My dad, he, he bought me a boombox. I was only like four or five years old. He bought me some cassette tapes with it. Uh, Michael Jackson Thriller, Prince, Purple Rain was one of them. <laughs> purple Rain, Purple Rain. 
<laughs> covered that in the past. Yeah, it's a great one. Ooh, yes. You cannot go wrong with Purple Rain. You cannot go wrong with Thriller. Yep. <laughs> I didn't really listen to much Beatles, though. But it does, yeah, it reminds me of our dad, you know, like introducing me to B.B. King, Steve Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, and all that stuff. Yeah, I remember listening to a lot of um, Metallica yeah. and Dire Straits. So now whenever I hear, you know, Metallica or Dire Straits, I'm like, oh, this is my jam. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler, yeah. You get a shiver in the dark, it's raining in the park, but meantime. Definitely one of my top influences, for sure. Mm-hmm. And those were all tapes. Right? Yes. I remember, yeah, tapes at the beginning and then, you know, middle school, high school, CDs were introduced. Yeah, that's right. It was, I think I got a CD for christmas when i was in middle school so do you remember your first cassette my first cassette yeah. oh boy <laughs> i do remember my first cd though what was it salt and pepper oh there you go uh which one was it, it was the one with shoop and what a man yeah, yeah. and all that stuff on it yeah that's classic it's got that iconic intro i wanna shoot baby Oh, yeah, there were some not-kid songs on that album. (laughs) I learned about the birds and the bees from Salt and Peppa. Here I go, here I go, here I go again, girls, what's my weakness? Okay, then, chillin', chillin', mindin' my business. So, um, we digress. (laughs) So, anyway, let's hear more about Chaz's influences growing up. My older brother was another influence um, he had a very, very super young age, like five years old. I remember him bringing home Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil, cassette tape. Listen to this. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I couldn't believe my ears. I was like, this is the coolest stuff ever, you know? It was like never heard anything like it you know and then he'd bring over like twisted sister and all these dio and black sabbath metallica megadeth but yeah that music is good though Mm, don't tread on me (laughs) don't tread on me yep (laughs) so chaz says his family supported all his musical interests and they were many in number (laughs) my dad he i was 12 years old when he bought me my first guitar or actually, I picked up his first, and then he he told me, if you play that for a month and you if you learn some chords, and then I'll, I'll buy you your own guitar. Yeah, he bought me my first guitar. It was like this white. It was called a Westone. I don't think they make those anymore. He enrolled me in guitar lessons after that, and that's really where it kind of started. Do you remember the first song you learned? Yeah, it was. Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine. I just love that beginning guitar lead. Back when I was a kid, I was like, I could listen to that all day. I was like, man. And then I, I, I was like, I got to learn that. So I started, you know, I learned it. And I was like, that was my favorite song to play. You know, I just loved playing that, that lead. It was like magical. And I picked up drums. A little bit later in life, I was, I was in my early or late 20s when I started playing serious drums. It's like my favorite hobby is drumming. That's what I love doing. That's my happy place. 
is when I'm behind the kit, you know, and I'm playing these tasty beats. Tasty beats. I love that. You know, you know what he <laughs> means by that? I probably, I, I think it's just that, that head banging fat beat type of situation. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Mm, I, th- I think of it like something that's new, you know, like, yeah. ooh, yum. Something that <laughs> makes you do the stink face and like, mm, <laughs> ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know what a stink face is, look up John Mayer stink face. <laughs> he does it plenty of times when he plays guitar. <laughs> um, Cole, I hate to break this to you. <laughs> I do the same. <laughs> you you got a little you got a little stink face when, yeah. when, when you perform. <laughs> Like it's it's kind of required <laughs> for guitar players, or it's just something that happens. You know, it's a human thing. There's got to be a study involved with the stink face <laughs> somewhere, for sure. But you know, it's a good sign though having a stink face because that means you're like really into it, right? You don't care what your face is doing, yeah, right? You're kind of into that, like, you know, that that mode, that like that happy place, yeah. right? That we're that music is so good at accessing. Yeah, and the, the stage, at least, you know, for me, is one of those great happy places, you know. Mm-hmm. So Chaz is a radio person who books musicians, right, and a musician. So he gets to help other musicians, kind of like myself, get gigs and stuff like that, which is totally awesome. And he asked me to come play. Um, I opened up for another musician, which was, like, totally cool, at Fortune Bay Casino. Hold my hand one more time. So my music that I perform, it's not like the most exciting stuff on the planet. I, I mean, I play keys and I sing, right? It's not like there's tasty beats or drums or whatever. Like, you know, I'm singing ballads and stuff like that. So sometimes, especially at a place like a casino, I kind of feel a bit out of place. So I was playing, and Chaz was like in the back, like nodding his head, jamming out. And I was like, I appreciate that, you know? So you can kind of, you can tell like he's a musician and just like likes all kinds of music too. And appreciates other musicians on stage doing doing their thing. Sometimes life can be a drag, you know. We have adult responsibilities. We have to pay bills. We have to go to our job that we probably don't like. Playing the drums and playing music takes me to a place that I want to be. You know, it's my own place. I live on the res, you know, and there's not a whole lot of things to do. They have a lot of bad things that you can do. Or you can do other things like your culture, art, or whatever else makes you happy that's my escape i can go in into my studio and i can sit there for hours and doesn't really feel like i've been there that long chaz says that especially on the reservation he's trying to get more people involved in music on the reservation community it's the drum brings people together and it's something that we're really losing unfortunately, you know, and I, I encourage people to learn and I'm open to teach anybody that's interested in, in singing at the drum and singing these Anishinaabe songs and these old songs that I know 
musically we can kind of bridge that gap. It's what I'm doing with Warbonnet, taking our old sound but bringing it into a format that is viable, that it exists today, and it's bridging the communities together. I really love what he's doing there, you know, getting more people involved, encouraging people to learn to sing at the drum and sing the songs. And sometimes I can be a little self-conscious because, like, I don't really do traditional music, but, like, it does inform my music in a way, but it's not necessarily what one might automatically recognize as traditional. Yeah, it may not be directly, but like on the subconscious level, like growing up listening to powwow music, like that's inevitably going to be a part of the music. Sure. And the story yeah. in the music too. And like he said, he, you know, he talked about DNA, mm. right? So there's still that DNA mm -hmm. that gets presented in it, I think. It's hard for me to to relate with him as far as you know being on the reservation but on my side of the situation i think just being somebody who's creating music as a native person showing people that they can express themselves musically and, and i mean that's the very least i can do yeah yeah I, th I mean we all have our own way of approaching our artistry and how much of our identity and culture we draw upon but yeah, how much of those traditional sounds or, you know, we choose to bring into our music is a personal choice. Yeah, and with Chaz, I just think of how much of a gift it is. Like when somebody like Chaz is doing something he loves, but also in the act of doing that, he's continuing this legacy of his people's culture. And it's great to see that with Chaz. So Chi miigwech to Chaz Wagner for sharing so much about himself and his music and all of that good stuff. Big wage, Jazz. And we are going to close out this first section here of the podcast with a Warbonnet song called Ikwe, which was written for missing and murdered Indigenous women. Children of Mother Earth, pray for those with no guardian. That together stand vigilant against those who seek to harm them. Welcome back to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lem. You know, Chaz had this incredible blend of musical influences, Native and non-Native. So he incorporates all of it into his music with Warbonnet. Yeah, and the next artist we're talking to had bigger challenges learning the visual art traditions of her Native ancestors. Diani Whitehawk Polk. She's a visual artist who works with paint and mixed media. She was even named one of the 2019 Artists of the Year by the Minneapolis Star Tribune newspaper. She's Sichungu Lakota. And Native Lights producer Melissa Townsend sat down with Diani. Hey, what's up? You're here. Hey, I'm here. So, Melissa, how did Diani get started as an artist? She said as a kid, she was always making something. It was her go-to activity. I was always drawing or making something. It was the place of most fulfillment and joy for me ever since I was young. Uh, it took my mom, though, to really convince me that I was an artist, you know, with the um, 
as an actual title and not just this is something I like to do. She used to tell me, uh, Diana, you're an artist, and one of these years you'll believe me. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't until I sold my first drawing that I called up my mom, and I, I feel like I, I actually finally believed her that I you know, was an artist and didn't just like making things. What is the power of that? You Like, somebody wants to buy it and have it. I mean, can you talk about what that feels like or how that's validating in a way? Well, it was an interesting experience for me because I wasn't trying to sell it. It was a drawing that I had done from one of my classes, and it was out on the wall on display with everybody else's. And it was actually a board member of the school that I was attending that asked the teacher to ask me if I would be willing to sell them that drawing. And so it was so exciting because somebody, you know, picked this one drawing out of a wall of drawings, um, made the effort to seek out the teacher and ask the teacher if they could ask me if I would sell it to them. So it is an honor because you recognize that somehow this thing that you've created that is meaningful to you and is heart work that's important for you to do somehow resonates and speaks to another human being so much so that they want to bring it into their world and into their life and into their home and live with it and be with it on a regular basis. She says the buying part is good too because of course you need the money to keep going. But you guys are musicians. Like, What's that feel like when people are interested in your music, buy your music? Yeah, it's great every now and then when you get like an email from like Bandcamp saying, somebody purchased your album. <laughs> it's like, I didn't even know that stuff was still on there. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's always great when somebody, you know, does that or like stops me after a performance. Yeah, I think for me, I don't like make money at music <laughs> and that's fine. Um, but like having people like give their time even to like come to a show and appreciate music is like such a huge deal. And I also like it if they'll like say a particular part, like I like that like lyrical line or something like that. It's always great because it's like they were actually paying attention. <laughs> That's sweet. I mean, that, that personal piece of it, I think you're sharing something of yourself, right? And people are like, yes, resonating. Like you're almost catching the same wavelength in a way. You know, to, to make the kind of art she wants... Um, which is, she describes it as a blend, right, of all that she is, because she is both um, Sichungu Lakota and European. She says it was easy to find classes and education on European artists, but it was much harder to find classes on Native traditions and Native artists. And she shared the story with me about how she had to go about doing that. I got my associate's degree from Haskell Indian Nations University, which is a tribal college in Lawrence, Kansas. And then I wanted to get my bachelor's degree. I wanted to get my BFA. And um, I had to wait for my husband to finish his bachelor's degree. And so I, uh, the University of Kansas is in the same town in Lawrence, Kansas. And they have a really reputable art program. So I thought I would get my bachelor's there. I enrolled and, and got admitted, and I went to the first week of classes, um, and I went to Art History 101, which is in a giant lecture hall, you know, hundreds of seats and students, and the teacher was breaking down the syllabus of what we were going to get into that semester, and it was all European and uh, European-American art history being predominantly old white guys, <laughs> you know, uh, 
I was, so I'm looking at it and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so you're not even going to get into like pre-Columbian art of this continent or, um, you know, African-American art or Asian-American art or any of that. And so I raised my hand and I asked, you know, and, and the teacher said, oh yeah, we teach that, but that's a different class, which told me that art history 101, in other words, the foundation of art history is... European and European-American people. That's the foundation as they understand it and they teach it. And anybody else is in other class. Um, And it's just, it's a farce. So I got really mad and (laughs) I went home and complained to my husband about how, how upset I was and how wrong it was and... He told me, he's like, you just need to drop out, babe. He's like, you, you don't want to go to school there. You know, I had just come out of getting my associate's degree at a tribal college where we centralize Native history, you know, and so to be thrown back in mainstream academia and, you know, realize that I was going to continue to be ignored and underrepresented in that place, he told me to drop out, wait for him to get his bachelor's, and we would move to Santa Fe, New Mexico, so I could get my bachelor's degree at the Institute of American Indian Arts, which is what we did. And um, I'm tremendously grateful for it. And then I went on to get my master's degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and where I was thrust back into the belly of the beast in mainstream academia. But I was ready for it, you know, and it was still hard, but I was really grounded in the years that I spent in tribal colleges, and it really helped me navigate uh, the mainstream academic system. Institute of American Indian Arts, I I went there too. But for the Masters of Fine Arts in Creative Writing program, where I focused in poetry to help me become a better songwriter. I.I. is such a gem because, like, we were required to read Native poets. We didn't have to read, like, Shakespeare or anything anything like that. So you come out with just just as rich, if not richer, um, understanding of craft in poetry you know, language and, you know, different ways of bringing in culture, bringing um, the importance of location and direction. And, you know, there there are all these things to explore with um, Native poets. And so what a really, really special place IAI is. Mm. But it is kind of frustrating to, like, go someplace, you know, a school or something and have Native people, like, not represented at all. Yeah. And Diane says that she sees kind of the reverberations of that, you know what I'm saying? Because when she goes to sell her work, when she goes to show her work, people don't understand the native, the native tradition in that work, right? Mm-hmm. They don't recognize uh, the, the echoes of ancestors who were artists yeah. in that work. In order for any curator or decision maker in the arts field to understand the value and the worth of what we make, we have to first fill them in with the entire history of our country for them to even get it, for them to even be able to look at a work and unpack what's in that work and to see and decode what's in the work. Oftentimes they miss it because they don't know the history. They aren't taught the history. They don't know our communities. They don't see our communities covered in the media. And so their slate is all but clear or it's packed with stereotypes and misunderstandings and historic images that often aren't true. Those curators are going to those schools that don't have Native art represented in their Art History 101 classes. 
Yeah, and they don't have to take those other electives. And you get situations like the scaffolding with the walker. Oh, yeah. You know what I thought was kind of a interesting story there from II? II has um, a museum in Santa Fe. And I heard, okay, this, you know, this is hearing this, but <laughs> this isn't first-hand knowledge, but I heard that non-Native people would go to the museum and ask for refunds because they're like, we didn't see, you know, like Native art or whatever because it's not what they imagine Native art to be. Instead, mm. it's like, wow. you know, <laughs> people who are Native making art, right? Yeah. Uh, of all you know, shapes and sizes and, you know, craft and, like, all these different ways. So they went in there expecting a certain situation yeah. and there wasn't enough beating for them or something like that. There wasn't enough, I don't know, yeah, like eagle feathers around. Yeah, or, just the... Uh, I mean, that stuff's cool, too. Like, everything's cool. yeah. legit, right? Not but, to drag on beating anything. <laughs> no, totally. I know. Well, she talks about that a lot, Native art versus art by a Native person, right? And here's what she says about that. One of the ongoing questions within the Native arts field is this, are you a Native artist or are you a, an artist who just happens to be Native? So when you go into museums, especially encyclopedic museums, you'll see that our works, predominantly the works of brown folks and women, are also continuously othered and put in different sections of the museum. And they're not in the greater narrative of fine art as it's been told so far. And I think how do I say this without using swear words? Uh, it's swear a <laughs> it's a crock of shit. It's and it's not true to life. I am a native person. I was born to my mother, and my mother was born to her mother, and we are Lakota, and that is a part of my artistic practice because it is a part of me and my upbringing and who I am. I bring in the histories of Lakota art forms and aesthetics into my work. I also paint on stretched canvas over stretcher bars, and I use and pull from the traditions of Western art history as well. So I'm all of those things, and it's not an either-or scenario. I am a Lakota artist, and I am simply an artist. I'm both of those things. So powerful. Diani says that about her work, that it's extremely personal, but it's also social and political. Like, it's her way of interacting with this moment in time and commenting on this moment in time. I mean, I do, you know, a tremendous amount of thinking about the, my work, about where I want it to go, what I want it to do in the world. And then I go through a lot of personal struggle in order to bring that thing to life. So... Through that struggle, I learn a lot about myself, and there's, you know, increased knowledge through the experiences of doing the work. You know, I'm, I'm seeking information. I'm, you know, having question and answer sessions with myself, uh, with other people. If I get stuck on an idea or a thought, you know, I make sure to reach out to other artists or family members or community members that I need to help me think through an idea. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly learning through the evolution of every piece. Leah, I saw a little amen happening over there. <laughs> when she said the struggle, I was like, ooh, 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 yeah. But I really love how she, like, consults other people. That's groundbreaking for me. Like, I couldn't imagine consulting somebody on a song, mm. you know, before it was done or 
in a state that I could show somebody else. So that's really cool. She does that. You I mean you collaborate, right? Yeah. Earlier, I was talking about the new song I'm working on, or the new recording, actually. New recording of an old. <laughs> it's been like a year and a half or two years that I've been working on this song, but it was like one of the first times where I had somebody come in, like a producer. He was like giving me pointers on how to structure the song, and that was kind of like the first time because usually it's very personal. I maybe took one piece of what he said, <laughs> but yeah, collaboration. Sometimes it helps, you know, improve the piece. Hmm. I'll be sure to try that. I want to try that soon. <laughs> I'll give it a go. There you go. Diani, she gets good conversations going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We want to thank uh, producer Melissa Townsend for sitting down with Diani and sharing her story with us. And we want to thank Chaz Wagner and Diani Whitehawk Polk for sharing their gifts and experiences with us. We also want to thank our engineer, Justice Sanchez project manager Aaron Warhol, producers Lori Stern, and Melissa Townsend. So thank you for joining us on season two of Native Lights. Yay! And to close out this show, we're going to play one of my songs that I, I've been talking about throughout this episode, and it's called 80s Bumpin' Lambo Beats.
Native Lights Podcast, where Indigenous voices shine, is a production of Minnesota Native News and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Native Lights Podcast is made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota. If you'd like to help us spread the word about Native Lights, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, and every major listening app, as well as minnesotanativenews.org.